The Athletic. Yes, hello there. How's it going? Thank you so much for joining us on this week's Zonal Marking Podcast. It's a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell and today joined by Tom Warville and by Michael Cox. Hello, Michael. How are you doing? Hi, very well. Thank you, Ali. Hope you and Tom are well as, as well. Yeah, sometimes it's nice to, to check in on each other before we dive straight into the topic. I mean, in a week where in the country where we are based, pubs have reopened and many people making the most of that. Michael, you've been drunk on pure Gazprom. I know Tuesday night's game in Paris between PSG and Bayern. I mean, I've never seen a, a piece with such excitement go up the next morning with Michael Cox as the byline. Yeah, it was a good game. I mean, I did a, a kind of full-on analysis for the first leg and I thought a few of the patterns were the same for the second. So I wanted to do something slightly different, but... Yeah, for me, it was a tie of contradictions. I think both uh, both games or both legs were won by the worst side on the night. Um, I thought the away goals all created a really exciting uh, situation for the, the second 45 minutes. Obviously, that's something we've done a podcast on before. I'm very much in favour of the away goals rule. And I just thought, actually, unusually, some of the injuries actually contributed to interesting things across the pitch. Bayern were forced to shift players into different positions. And PSG, I think they had a couple of players who stepped up, like, Paredes, um, for example, um, and in defence as well um, with Danilo. I thought a couple of players who maybe don't usually get the credit um, were excellent on the night. So yeah, for various reasons, I thought it was a really great game and a great tie. Two early plugs. Read Michael's piece on PSG Bayern, which went up Wednesday morning, but also scroll back almost as far as you possibly can on this podcast feed, wherever you listen to us, to February 2020, a podcast with Michael and Omar Chowdhury of 21st Club uh, talking about the away goals rule. You might think you've got a steer on it and you might have an opinion on it, but just give that a listen and see what you think afterwards, because that was one of our early pods, still one that we're very proud of. Tom Warville, how are you getting on this week? All well? Yeah, good. Thanks, Sally. Really, really well. I'm excited about the topic that we're tackling this week. It's Premier League related, and it's, to me, the most interesting aspect of this Premier League season as we are right now with around seven games to go. Now this week your colleague Mark Carey, another analytics writer for The Athletic, has written about the battle for the top four alternative titles are Champions League, Mini League, uh, four into two doesn't go. We've got a lot of, of, of subheadings for this but in that piece was an Opta predicted final league table and when it's Opta you know it's you know it's been done with care um, and it's got City at the top, Manchester United in second. The next four teams on 67 points, 67 points, 66 points and 66 points. So from a pure footballing and sporting competitiveness perspective, this has to be the most compelling part of the Premier League season as we are today. Yeah, I, d- I definitely agree. Um, it's it's rare to see kind of two models like that. I mean, you've got the, the Opta 1 and also 538, I think, have kind of gone hand in hand with their, their predictions. And it just feels like obviously that's the average outcome of all these simulations. But yeah, it's, it's odd to see one as close as that. So really just show how close this running is is going to be really for those those top four positions yeah really interested to to get your guys thoughts on this uh, for reference the current champions league mini league uh, has the incumbents leicester and west ham in third and fourth 
on 56 Leicester and 55 West Ham. The challengers, as I'm calling them, Chelsea 54, one point behind West Ham and Liverpool 52. And then the outsiders, Tottenham on 49 and Everton on 48 with a game in hand. You might turn your nose up at them, but we will just have a little chat about those two clubs at the end as well. See if there could be a late run. I feel at this stage of the season... There is often a lot of focus from the neutral fans and the media, perhaps on those who who might make a late run from outside the top four and get into it. And and I wonder whether because we love the thrill of the chase so much, sometimes we overrate the challenges and maybe underrate those who are, are there in those positions, those who they are chasing. So let's talk Leicester and West Ham, third and fourth place to start with. Work out if they're looking solid for Champions League football next year or somewhat vulnerable. Uh, Leicester first up, Tom. They've lost their last two games in the Premier League to fellow top four sides in Man City and West Ham, of course. They'd won four in six prior to that. Looking at the results and form on paper, it's kind of tough to find clarity, I think, on on how they're playing, on their form. So I was wondering what the underlying numbers tell us about their recent performances. Yeah, even just looking at a slightly larger sample of games, I mean, it marks peace, which... Um, I thought was was a great read. Um, if you look at kind of the last last ten games, I think they've got the lowest points per game of all the top six, apart from Liverpool. Now that of course includes Liverpool's kind of awful spell at home of late, and and doesn't really show that they've won their last three. But it's also backed up by Leicester's underlying performances, just not being very good. Their numbers aren't great. If you look at the kind of how their expected goals against have. have progressed or regressed in recent weeks the team is conceding more and more chances as the weeks go by and I think Kasper Schmeichel now is kind of below average in terms of shot stopping and that's potentially just due to his own form or just due to the fact that he's having to to face more shots as well so I think on a defensive end things aren't great uh, and the attacking front and the attacking front things have improved I think we'll, we'll get on to Kalecci and Nacho's impact of late but um, it really doesn't help losing the likes of of James Madison, of Iosi Perez, obviously with the kind of recent news of them kind of breaking COVID restrictions, just on a, a top four race on a knife edge like this one, you know, these fine margins matter. Having a, a player of the quality of James Madison on the pitch in any game is going to be really helpful. So that's uh, really, I guess, bad judgment from him and it's going to impact the team in uh, in the coming weeks because you you want to get a point or, or win against West Ham, especially when they are uh, so close to them in the table. And Michael, in recent weeks as well, certainly since we last spoke about Leicester around six weeks ago, there has been a, a change of shape or at least a change of formation from Brendan Rodgers. Just talk me through the changes that he's made and why. Yeah, I'm not sure there's a, a completely cl- a conclusive explanation. I mean, he went to up top for the last 15 minutes of that comeback against Liverpool. Incredible comeback for a 3-1 win. I wonder whether that partly inspired the shift to, to two up front. Uh, in that game, it was Vardy and Barnes, but generally, of course, it's been Vardy and Ian Acho, who's been Leicester's best player in the past couple of months. Um, and there's been interesting variations. I mean, at times it's been 3-4-1-2 with Perez behind the two strikers, but at times it's been more of a 3-5-2 and Perez has moved into a left centre midfield role, which is a position I couldn't really have imagined him playing. I thought of him as a, a number 10 who could shift up front. Um, I mean, throughout this campaign, and to be fair, last campaign, I think there's been a lot of chopping and changing based upon injuries. I mean, there, you know, Rogers has suffered a lot of really key injuries in key positions to really important players. And I think generally has coped very well. But I think sometimes you, you do start to wonder whether there's too many players who've been shifted about into different positions constantly. I mean, Castan, who, who came in the summer and I think made a really good initial impact, has, has been a good signing. But the weekend, I mean, he's played on the left and on the right in a back four and as a wing back. And then at the weekend, he was played as a right-sided centre-back or he's moved to right-sided centre-back for the second half. 
and about two minutes in just charged out of his position for absolutely no reason at all to let West Ham in for the, the third goal, which was essentially the decisive goal in the end. So it's just little things like that where I wonder whether, you know, a combination of tiredness and just players having to shift into different positions week in, week out is causing some problems. And, you know, the form over recent weeks is a bit of a concern. A change of formation doesn't have to be something dramatic, does it, Michael? Because, you know, you might change the the formation of your players, the starting formation anyway, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're changing the style of play of the team or just the general general principles of, of their tactical play. Yeah, that's true. And I think Rogers is one of those managers who would say that his side always tries to play with familiar principles regardless of what system they're in, but also has always been someone who's capable of of shifting formation. I think he did that really well on occasion at Liverpool. Even going back to his days with Swansea, there was always a couple of different systems he could switch to. So, I mean, Leicester always a side I find interesting to watch. Um, And I don't necessarily think their slump has been due to tactical concerns. Um, But yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing where I think in the big games... You look to Rogers really to vary his system, and, and obviously, as Tom says, the last two um, against fellow top four sides they've lost. The West Ham one being obviously much more concerning than the Manchester City defeat. I do think one constant we've seen in recent weeks, though, is that they've got this really solid Ndidi and Tielemans kind of double pivot now, which I think that a lot of the other teams in the top, perhaps top six, top eight, would be looking at very enviously because these are two players who have been bought in for relatively low fees. They've really grown into their roles of late. And I mean, Tielemans, you know, some some pundits and people talking about him as a potential player of the season, which I think is a bit too much of a stretch, but it just shows you how good that he's been. And that is so important for a Roger system where you can you can change the numbers up front kind of attacking going forwards you can change from a, a back five to a back a back four or, you know back three and have, have wing backs but I think that having that solid spine is really really important and for Leicester it's it's, it's a good base for them to, to build on from here that even with all these injuries they've got those two who are you know giving you a seven or eight out of, out of ten most uh, most games. And the obvious positive from the last six weeks has been Kelechi Iheanacho. Nine goals in his last six games in all competitions since the beginning of March. And Tom, that was enough to see him named the Premier League Player of the Month for March. I think he's looked really impressive. Uh, I mean, his scoring is going to cool down. He's got seven goals and roughly three XG when we look at stats from his numbers and FB ref. But um, he's actually per 90 that time. He's getting into the second best positions behind Harry Kane. Um, he's getting 3.8 shots away per 90, which is a really, really high number. Uh, carrying the ball more than any other striker, attempting more take-ons than any other striker in that time frame. And um, yeah, I think that the biggest thing really for Iheanacho is that previously in his career, a lot of his numbers have kind of been padded because of sub-effects because he'd come on late in the game and he'd get 20 minutes and two shots off and his per 90 numbers would start to look really good. But that's not happened of late and it's shown that he actually, when fit and when firing, can start games. And I think going back to kind of my previous point about Ndidi and Tielemans, Ian Acho's had more touches than any other striker in in that time frame since the start of March uh, and turns the ball over less as a kind of proportion of his touches than any other striker apart from Vardy so I think he plays that sorry any other striker than than Alex Lacazette at Arsenal so I think he plays that linking role really really well and combining that with also getting shots off that's uh, it's been really good for Leicester in, in the last couple of weeks yeah I've been really impressed by uh, Ian Acho's um, tactical intelligence I think his uh, his understanding of the game plan and you know, if you play two up front, you can't just have two strikers standing up front all the time. And it's it's been Ian Acho who's dropped off into deeper positions 
I think everyone accepted a while ago that Vardy, while happy to do the running, I think is best when he stays on the last line of defence and can just make continuous sprints in behind. And Iheanacho is just very good at blocking passes into the midfield or sometimes mark, uh, mount, sometimes man marking an opposition holding midfielder and then, of course, shifting forward into his usual position. I think he's very good at taking the ball almost on the turn as well. So, yeah, I've really enjoyed watching him. I must say I was kind of on the fence about him as... Uh, as a player until probably until actually the last game of last season when there was that Champions League decider if you like against Manchester United where Leicester lost 2-0 but I thought Ian Asher was the best player on the pitch um, I, th- I think that really showed his his quality um, but yeah whether it's working for Vardy is a different question because he's uh, he tends to be a bit of a streaky player doesn't he Vardy but he's uh, he's currently in uh, arguably his worst form for, well certainly his worst form under Rodgers probably his worst form since Claude Powell was in charge and how much do you put that down to the natural decline of a player of his age who's played so much football over the last few years at the top level and how much maybe down to having to share the the, the striker position with Iheanacho? I, I can't think of many strike partnerships uh, at the very top level of the game, teams playing two up top in this day and age, as they say. Do you think it's a good fit or an awkward fit? I mean, at times it's looked okay. Um, the 5-0 win against Sheffield United... I thought they were excellent. The problem is it's difficult, really, I guess, to read too much into that. You know, the opposition really is, is with respect, it was almost like a training game for Leicester. But I thought the patterns of play were brilliant with the, with two strikers in the channels. I mean, I think Vardy, because he because he always belongs in the channels, really, he can play in a two if, if they're, they're both occupying one channel each. So I don't think it's a disastrous situation for him. I, I just think maybe he's... Uh, yeah, maybe there's a bit of tiredness uh, towards the end of a busy campaign. Um, but I, I, I think, I mean, there have been signs that they can work together as a partnership. And like I say, Barnes and, and Vardy played very well up front together uh, towards the end of that Liverpool game. So, yeah, I'm not sure it's necessarily a tactical concern for Vardy at the moment. Of course, they're missing Barnes uh, under James Justin Soyuncu at the moment as well. So they are impacted by injuries, uh, as are some other teams. Others uh, lucky in that regard at the moment. The bench on Sunday looked very low on quality, didn't it? Although that wasn't just because of injuries. Uh, Rob Tanner, who covers Leicester for The Athletic, writing the primer on the the naughty boys, Iosi Perez, James Madison, Harvey Barnes and and Wes Morgan, of all people, um, having a party and and being left out by Brendan Rodgers for that game. Theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking, by the way, is a good place to go if you want to read that piece Michael and Tom's work as well, and so much other good stuff on the Athletic site. The offer is £3.99 for the next six months if you sign up using that code today. So theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking. Uh, lastly on Leicester, before we move on, Michael, their next two league fixtures after an FA Cup semi-final against Southampton this weekend are at home to West Brom and Crystal Palace. Of course, last season, Leicester did fall away from the top four pretty spectacularly. Will that happen again? It is concerning, isn't it? Looking at their form, I wonder whether it's a fitness thing. We have seen, of course, the Rodgers side before. Back with Liverpool, have a have a difficult end of the season as well. Um, I think they'll recover from the last couple of defeats, but they are looking over their shoulders now. I think that West Ham loss might prove crucial at the end of the campaign, but they have got a really good chance of lifting the trophy. I mean, they're in the FA Cup semi-final, like you say, it's, it's something they've never won before. You'd expect them to get through against Southampton and then they'll have a one-off game against City or Chelsea and certainly on their day they're capable of, of upsetting I think anyone in the league so yeah I'm, I'm slightly pessimistic about their Champions League hopes compared to two or three weeks ago but it could still be a good end of the campaign. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Well, I wanted to know if third and fourth place Leicester and West Ham were looking sturdy or vulnerable. I'm going to move Leicester into the vulnerable bucket there. So let's talk West Ham next because... Michael, we did a pod on West Ham and Leicester and their overperformance around two months ago. And the keywords that I took away from that were how efficient and organised David Moyes' side were. But in their last three Premier League games, they've experienced a three-all draw followed by two 3-2 wins. (laughs) What's going on? Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Because uh, I think when we did that piece, we talked about how well they defended deep, in part because they've got Rice and Suchek who almost drop in and act as two bonus centre-backs at times. Obviously, Rice has been out for the past couple of games. That hasn't helped. I mean, sometimes there is an argument they drop too deep. You know, I think that was obvious at the weekend. Moyes spent the last five minutes of the game just shouting out, out at his players, kind of like a Sunday league goalkeeper, um, which I quite enjoyed. So while Moyes obviously is a manager who traditionally does like his side to drop off, clearly even he thinks at times they are dropping off a little bit too much. But I mean, it's 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 almost tough to be too critical of them because they are taking these 3-0 leads in the first place. Um, and I think they've been fantastic. It's it's just difficult to fault anything about them in recent weeks, especially because they've had, I mean, for the game of the weekend, they were without Mikhail Antonio, so they were without a centre-forward and still scored three goals. Um, so yeah, they've been... There is a concern about how they're dropping off, but I think overall it's, it's difficult for us to be at all critical about them, isn't it? Because... I mean, when I look at my pre-season prediction, uh, this is going to turn out to be the the team I've got the wrongest since Leicester in 2016. (laughs) So I can't be too harsh on them at all. The the outlier. Yeah, Tom, I mean, speaking of of that uh, defensive strength that we spoke about a few months ago, they're they're averaging two goals per game going forward over the last few months. 26, in fact, in their last 13 league games. Uh, Is this a, a legit attacking team for the level that's developed over the last few months or a massive hot streak? Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a hot streak element of it. I mean, we've spoken in the past before about how I mean, West Ham's numbers are, are top six good in, in the Premier League. Like They are legit in, in that sense, but I think it's probably just not as good as we're seeing at the moment. Um, and, and I think if we look at it through the lens of Jesse Lingard, I mean, it tells us kind of everything we have to know really eight goals from around 2.8 non-penalty xg is uh it's it's wild really and you see some of the goals that he is scoring i mean i think back to a half volley not so long ago i think back to the kind of the the volley of the weekend of again half volley um against leicester and it doesn't even like it just looked odd like i can't explain it it just looked like it, it he hits it in such a way that it just didn't. It just seems so weak, and Schmeichel didn't really move, and still ends up in the back of the net. And that's you know at times those bounces go right for you. Um, so I think that obviously he's on a, a very hot finishing streak, and and even he's got three assists from around half half unexpected assists. So again, even on that front, he's he's absolutely flying. So yeah, I think that you know Lingard's obviously added a lot of energy, and he's added goals and things like that. The underlying performances aren't quite there but equally like you know I, I find it kind of hard to try and explain a way in a way that's not too dull and dry and uh, and kind of sucking the fun out of football because you see someone like Lingard who has had his his downs of late moved to West Ham it's a great fit and he's playing as well as he is you want to kind of cheer that on um, rather than trying to uh, trying to caveat his performances away which I, I'll try not to do so yeah I think that they've been really exciting this season they've been great going forwards if it does slip 
then you got you know why because the numbers aren't as good there. But maybe they'll they'll carry on just until the uh, the end of the season and secure that um, third or fourth space. Well, we can point the fingers elsewhere when it comes to taking the the sentiment and the fun out of it. Because, I mean, the bookmakers still have West Ham as more likely to miss out on the top four than make it, with Leicester, Liverpool and Chelsea all having a better implied probability if you look at the bookies. I mean, they've won 10 of their last 15 Premier League games, but 538, you spoke about them earlier, they agree um, with the bookmakers. The Opta prediction model has them just outside. I mean, I mean, explain to us why that would be to those who might say, hold on, they've won 10 out of 15. They're absolutely not looking vulnerable. Is it because the underlying numbers are still unimpressive compared to some of the challenges? Yeah, I think that any team that's winning 10 out of 15, it's going to come to an end at, at some point, unless you are kind of very, very good. Man City. Side Man City, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, <laughs> Liverpool of seasons past, really. So all good things come to an end, really. Uh, and that is, that's no different. But I think that with the bookies models, it's interesting because they will include in that some of the stuff which is less easy to model. You know, the, the likes of missing a player like Declan Rice, which means that you have to play Mark Noble in midfield, which changes the balance of how you can defend the space that's covered, how they can even progress the ball upfield. Aaron Cresswell being injured as well as the main set piece taker. I mean, we've spoken before how good West Ham have been from set pieces this season. That will go into the bookies' estimations of, of where West Ham kind of sit as well. And yeah, I think Antonio being a big miss as well. I mean, Lingard's playing well and scoring, but he's not getting into the positions that Antonio does. Um, I think he was second or third highest in terms of XG per 90 the uh, up until his injury so you know all those things combined is a bit more information over what the 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 opta or the 538 models have and it is probably the the reason for a slight uh slight difference there michael it's interesting how we look at fixtures at this stage of the season you, you want to analyze teams run-ins and decide who has the the easier games on paper but of course it's not always as simple as that because sometimes if you weight it by league position, you might think a game against a team down at the bottom is easier than a game against a team in 10th. But in terms of motivation, that certainly isn't always the case. West Ham have four games against teams towards the bottom. West Bromwich Albion, Burnley, Newcastle and Brighton. Just from a tactical perspective, does the way they play and does the way they are winning games suit playing against teams down at the bottom? Or could there be an issue there for them? Yeah, it's an interesting point, and I think it's probably quite a complex answer. I mean, first and foremost, I think Brighton might be ideal for them because Brighton play with the style of a top side, but obviously not a top side in terms of league position. The others, I mean, West Brom and Burnley and Newcastle tend to sit deep. So maybe you could say there's a problem there for West Ham, who I think have been at their best on the counter-attack, no doubt about that. But I'd also argue that actually Moises, I mean, he's got historically a really bad track record against the, the actual big sides. So this isn't a counter-attacking side that we expect to, you know, be like Crystal Palace in years gone by or something like that. I mean, that's the confusing and slightly frustrating thing I, I find with Moyes. For example, the, the game, I think three weeks ago, maybe, where they went away to Manchester United and lost 1-0. They were so negative in that game. They were so negative. I mean, it was 5-4-1. At times it looked like 5-5-0. I just think that they didn't offer enough attacking threat. And I... I do wonder with Moyes sometimes why he doesn't change his approach against those bigger teams because he's he's played a certain way against them for 
best part of two decades and his record isn't great. So it's not like he's a Hodgson or an Allardyce or even a Tony Pulis. You do sometimes want a little bit more. But yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think they also have ball players who can dominate possession and create good chances in uh, in tighter situations as well. So I'm going to sit on the fence here, Ali. I'm, I'm going to say that maybe they're not they're not one of those sides who wants to be playing against stronger opposition. So yeah, I'd be interested to see how those games go. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, let's take a look at the, the challenges then. Uh, you've got Chelsea just one point behind West Ham. They've got a game against West Ham to come uh, at the London Stadium on the 24th of April. That's a date for your diary for sure. Uh, Michael, 12 league games under Thomas Tuchel, 25 points in that time, the second best in the league. Uh, what have been the key improvements in the last few months at Stamford Bridge? Yeah, they've been excellent, haven't they? Aside from that slightly freak game against West Brom. I mean, I think there's been improvements in a number of ways. First and foremost, I think there's more structure than Chelsea ever had under Frank Lampard. There's quite a familiar system. Um, there's been some variations within the framework, but usually it's been three at the back. Two sitting midfielders, two wing backs, and a flexible front three. I think that has allowed them control of the game. You can see that particularly in terms of their defensive record, which is absolutely sensational, again, with the exception of that game against West Brom. And then they've got variety in the final third. I mean, I think it's difficult at this point to say that there's one player who's obviously going to start the majority of games for the rest of the campaign, probably with the exception of uh, Mason Mount, who's having a great season, of course. Um, But they've got options. I mean, they've got up front, they can play Havertz, as a false-ish nine. They can play Werner for pacing behind. They can play Giroud for his hold-up play. They can play Abraham, who I think is probably the, the closest to an all-rounder of, of those kind of styles. And just behind him as well, Havertz can play there. Timo Werner has played there on occasion. We've seen flashes of magic from Ziyech and from Pulisic in, in recent weeks. And I think that there's just there's just a combination of players that, that Tuchel is, is the right manager for. He is very tactically minded. He's not someone who necessarily wants the same players week in, week out. And I think that probably benefits Chelsea's side. So, yeah, I think he's done a fantastic job. And I'm, I'm still surprised at the level Chelsea are at. Only, a, what, was it three months into the Tuchel regime? And I know this isn't what we're chatting about today, but I think they've also got a really good chance of winning the Champions League, which we never would have said when the draw for the knockouts was made uh, in December. I like that I've asked what they've improved and the answer is pretty much everything. It's like the opposite of that uh, very famous Manchester United tweet when David Moyes was manager. Uh, I think they'd lost a game and the United account tweeted, David Moyes says MUFC must improve in a number of areas, including passing, creating chances and defending. Uh, It's almost like the opposite of that. Chelsea improved in in all the key areas. Uh, Tom, the big question is, and the reason why we love having you on, how carried away should Chelsea fans be getting by the improvements, what do the underlying performance numbers say about how good, how dominant in Premier League terms they've been? 
I think the uh, the recent win against Palace kind of tells you everything you you need to know about their progress of late. Perhaps uh, not on the the attacking front, but defensively, I think it was their second best performance under Tuchel in terms of xG against. They were just so stingy in the number of chances that they they granted Palace in that game, and uh, and it was their best performance attacking wise going forward as well uh, under Tuchel in the league in terms of both you know goals scored and and the the quality of chances they created per expected uh, expected goals as well. So I mean overall. In the time that uh, that Tuchel's been at the club since the 26th of January, Chelsea been the best defensive side in the league, just pipping City in terms of chances they've they've conceded. And going forward, they're about the sixth best attack. So I think combined, that's a really nice place to be at. And I mean, if anyone can challenge City's dominance on the defensive end, then you've got a chance of challenging them for the title. Really, it's just they're they're so good at using possession in a in a, in a defensive manner. Really, but yeah, we'll we'll see. Hopefully, that tick up next season. I think do think that. You know, you look at the squad that Chelsea have, and and the fact that Tuchel can get these performances out of them in such a short period of time, with summer reinforcements up front, potentially a a new centre forward, um, even just more time on the training pitch. Like I think teams at the moment are just struggling to actually get on the pitch and work on certain concepts. And we saw the boost that that Everton got from last season appointing Ancelotti to you know having the summer and then this season. The same with Spurs at the start of the season with with Mourinho. You'd think that. Chelsea will get that same kind of boost in the attacking end next season as well. So yeah, all things kind of look positive. Really, it doesn't seem like they're running too hot or or too cold. And uh, too cold, you could probably try and make some awful pun there. But yeah, I think that um, yeah, they're, they're they're looking good and uh, exciting to see where they build up from here. Michael, I'm going to bring up run-in analysis again, fixture analysis because I find it fascinating. It's certainly not an exact science. You know, if West Ham are playing. A lot of teams down at the bottom. Chelsea, quite the opposite. The, the toughest run-in by some distance, according to uh, a soccer stats run-in analysis that, that I like to look at. They've got huge games. As I said, West Ham away, 24th of April. Leicester at home, 15th of May. Arsenal and City to come as well. The reason I say it's not an exact science is there's a positive in everything, right? You can take points off the team's around you. And certainly in the case of West Ham and Leicester, those fixtures will be crucial. But... On a separate level, you mentioned they're in the Champions League semi-finals, the FA Cup semi-final this weekend, of course. Do you think tough scheduling like this, big games, and a lot of them is a large issue uh, for a club at the business end of the season? Or do you think we overplay these sorts of scheduling and fatigue issues? No, I think it is an issue. Uh, There's not many Premier League teams who are still fighting in three competitions at the moment. Um, so yeah, I, th- I was unaware of these stats actually. I was actually unaware of this soccerstats.com run-in oh. analysis. So thank you very much for well, that. That's a fantastic welcome. resource. Um, I'll give you a I'll give you a run through later. I'll give you a tutorial. It's a brilliant website. Yeah, it's excellent. I, I really enjoyed that link. So yeah, clearly that is an issue. I mean, it is it's quite extreme actually when you look at the difference uh, compared to the other sides going for the Champions League places. So yeah, I can't deny that's an issue. One thing I'd say is that I think Chelsea probably have the most complete, deepest squad in the Premier League, particularly in attacking positions where, you know, that tends to be where there's more rotation and it's more about sprinting and constant movement. So I think Tuchel doesn't have too much excuse for that because like I say, I think he's got so many numbers. They have looked pretty good so far in in what you'd consider big games under Tuchel let's move on to Liverpool now really interesting club to talk about because Michael from the 27th of December until the 7th of March they picked up 12 points from 14 games but since then they've won three in a row so I guess my question to you is what were the key issues during that poor run and to what extent have they been sorted 
Well, first and foremost, I think the really bad run was a bit of a freak run. I mean, they weren't as bad as the constant losses at home made them look. And I think we all knew that they would uh, improve at least a little bit from that that bad run. What has changed? I think, you know, at that point they had two completely unfamiliar centre-backs with uh, Phillips and Kabat. I think at times they've actually looked really good together. Phillips has improved a lot, very good in the air. And Kabak has, has done okay. I think his first couple of games were really quite difficult, weren't they? Particularly that one against Leicester we mentioned earlier. That has allowed Fabinho to return to midfield. I think that has really changed things. I think he's probably the best defensive midfielder in the league, certainly when he's at his best and when he's fit, which hasn't always been the case. And then up front, you've had the reserve, uh, return of Jota. I think that has just provided a real spark, more than anything, just the kind of injection of enthusiasm and running and sprinting because I thought that the front three really looked tired there hasn't been much rotation over the last three years and I think a couple of them are flagging particularly Mane actually who I would have said beforehand was maybe the most consistent of them and that's also given tactical options to Klopp I mean he hasn't always used well he hasn't really used the front four together I don't think since Jota's return to fitness but it is an option Um, we're speaking on the the day of the Real Madrid game I know a lot of Liverpool fans would probably like to see the front four in action tonight and also the fullbacks have picked up their form a bit. I mean, me and Tom uh, both contributed to an uh, article on Alexander Arnold a couple of months ago before he was quite such the talking point that he's been over the last two or three weeks. But my conclusion from looking at, basically we asked to, to write that article because he hadn't been getting many assists and I went through and looked at loads of his crosses and actually I thought the type of crosses he was playing they were almost ambitious crosses and I thought he was, for as long as he kept on trying to play those kind of passes, those measured cutbacks to the edge of the box, I thought sooner or later one of them would uh, would pay off. So he's he's certainly returned to form, I think, in the last couple of weeks. Certainly going forward, obviously he had a very difficult game away at Real Madrid. But I think it's been more like the Alexander-Arnold we've seen over the last couple of years. I'm, I'm interested in crossing and crossing analysis. I wonder if that's something we could look to do on this pod in the next few weeks. Tom, why don't you talk me through the numbers here? I mean, as as Michael said, that that particular run was a bit of a freak, of course, massively uh, prompted by injuries and they're still missing Van Dyke and Henderson and Gomez, so not all sorted there, but when you look under the hood at the at the numbers, does everything look okay? Look almost back to normal? I definitely wouldn't say back to normal. I'd say that things are looking quite stark versus seasons past. I mean, in Mark's Mark's piece, which if you're, you know, listen to this, I'd employ you to go and read because the, the graphic which Mark's got in there kind of shows, again, this kind of rolling XG4 and XG against. And you see in, in 18-19, the team is by far and away at its best and was obviously pipped to the title by City on the last day. 19-20, defence gets a little bit worse, attack declines a little bit. And then this season, at this point, kind of the the... The red and the blue lines in terms of the quality of chances created and conceded are the closest that they've probably been in any point in the last three seasons. So definitely underlying wise, this is by no means a Liverpool side which has bounced back to its strongest um, in the past kind of couple of seasons. And, you know, of course, injuries are a huge factor in that when you're playing your second or third string player in a given position, it's going to have have a knock on effect. But um, it does really make me think that they will perhaps go big in the summer because they'll be looking at these these metrics themselves internally and seeing you know how do we remain competitive even in a in a pandemic and and, and with a really you know kind of aging squad so yeah really um 
I don't know, I feel like I'm kind of tired of the Liverpool debate just because it's, it feels quite obvious the, the reasons are if you don't play your best players in the best positions and you have to play backups, of course you're not going to be as good a team. But now, you know, hopefully it's a bit of a bit of light at the tunnel for them getting Fabinho back in midfield. I'd, I'd agree with Michael, it's, uh, it's really big and hopefully we see the, the front four uh, in action tonight because I think that the couple of games when they got to play 4-2-3-1, they're actually um, quite exciting. I, I must admit, I'm interested to know what, what the listeners think and what the listeners' predictions are for this top four race and feel free to, to let us know on Twitter. It's always really good to hear from you, but from my perspective sitting here and listening to you guys I wasn't sure to what extent I thought Chelsea and Liverpool could or would chase down West Ham and Leicester but I think whether you meant to or not for me it feels like they're they're ominous these two sides I must admit so fascinating to see how the next seven games will play out now we have got Spurs and Everton as part of the conversation as well kind of bolted on at the end because of course they're a fair few points away and you'd say neither of them on particularly good form Michael a week ago on the athletic site you wrote a piece that I thought was so good I actually retweeted it on on uh, Twitter which I don't often do for your pieces because I feel like they get enough eyes on them Um, the, the the title was Mourinho's tactics look like they're designed to absolve him of blame and put pressure on Tottenham players. Just tell me about how that one came about. What prompted it? Well, because I don't think the major issue with Mourinho really is his tactics. I mean, I think the major issue is his, his management of the squad. We saw that at Chelsea and Manchester United. Chelsea went from first, from winning the league to what he left them in 15th place or 16th place. You don't get that by being tactically antiquated from one season to the next. The same with Manchester United when they went from second to Seventh, And I think probably the same thing is happening at Tottenham. But it was just a look at really whether you can completely separate man management from your tactical thinking. And I, I do think there's a sense sometimes that Mourinho is, is a bit old school in the sense that he likes, he likes putting big individual responsibility on players. He likes players who are good at their traditional jobs. He likes traditional centre forwards, old school defenders. He likes, he's a kind of manager who would say, you know, I want men in there. Do you know what I mean? And I just think sometimes that is... He's almost heaping the pressure on the players when I think the the modern managers, when you look at the kind of level of compactness and the level of kind of all-round ability players have to have, I think tasks are more of a collective activity than sometimes they are for Mourinho's side. So, yeah, I was looking at whether you can completely separate man management and, and tactics because I'm not completely on board with, you know, the idea that he's behind the times tactically. But I think sometimes his decision making may stem from him being a little bit behind the times in a man management sense. As you can imagine, that was a very calm comment section on that piece. Many people agreeing with you, praising you almost, but a lot of people disagreeing as well. So after that, it must have been interesting for you to watch that game against Manchester United on Sunday and a lot of what you had written about kind of playing out again in front of our eyes. Yeah, I think I only saw the comments section after a few comments. They were all very nice. I didn't realise that some people disagreed, Ali, so thanks for <laughs> I'll go back and look at that now. But yeah, it was, I mean, this is the frustrating thing as as a journalist, I suppose, or for everyone really, is that we've seen this, Mar- this pattern with Mourinho at the last two clubs, arguably the last three clubs at Real Madrid. And now we're seeing the same pattern repeated within games. So it's just... It's difficult to keep on finding new things to say about Mourinho, I must say. But yeah, that was that fit into the pattern perfectly. And I thought the scoring roughly went with the pattern of the game, didn't it? I thought Tottenham were the best side for the first half hour against Manchester United. And by full time, I thought Manchester United deserved to win by at least two clear goals. So yeah, it's familiar failings for, from, from where I'm 
from where I'm seeing this. And Tom, a lot of doom and gloom, of course, around the place at the moment. Emotions running high after that defeat and the others that preceded it. Let's try and take the emotion out of it with our old friends, the numbers. Uh, any hope for Spurs fans? Any chance of a late dart into the top four? I don't think so. I mean, if you look at, again, the underlying numbers, they're not really improving of late. Conceding any more than then 2xG against Newcastle is bad, let alone 4. So they're about 11th best when it comes to kind of expected goal difference since the start of Feb, which is far from ideal. Uh, the models think they're going to finish 7th, which is probably apt right now. And it's a bit of a shame given, you know, Son and Son and Kane have had brilliant individual seasons. And if there's going to be any uptick in performance, you think it's got to be Harry Kane kind of dragging them, kicking and screaming up the table. But um no, I'm uh, I'm quite pessimistic on, on Spurs' chances. OK, and what about Everton in eighth place? We've included them here because, I mean, mathematically, they're certainly not out of it. They're only four points behind Liverpool with a game in hand. So I think they should be included here, even if it's something of a long shot. The nil-nil draw with Brighton on Monday probably hindered them rather than helped them. Michael, what are your thoughts on Everton uh, with eight games of the season left? Yeah, real outsiders, like you say. I mean, they've, they've faced a lot of injury problems in recent weeks and I think that's really dictated the, the shape and the system and the style that Carlo Ancelotti has played. Uh, I mean, they're in really poor form at the moment, really, for a side who we are speaking about as Champions League challengers. But yeah, I've, I've got sympathy for Ancelotti because of the injuries. I mean, in uh, the 0-0 with Brighton, he brought on a a guy called Nathan Broadhead, who I hadn't previously heard before and had to do the old go to Wikipedia and check him out. And I was surprised to learn he was 23 because you just assume if there's a player you haven't heard of, he's going to be 18 or 19, but five years older than I would have guessed. So yeah, I, I think they're struggling really. They're a side who depend upon at least one of Richarlison and, and James Rodriguez and Dominic Cavalier being in good form. We have seen that at various points in the season, but I don't think that is the case at the moment. And I think sometimes the... The mid midfield, I like them individually, but I think, I mean, for example, with Davies, Holgate and Sigurdsson for the Brighton game, it just looked really pedestrian to me, um, not really moving the ball forward quickly enough. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not really at all optimistic about Everton getting into the Champions League places. Yeah, I think the the bookies odds kind of back that up as well. I mean, Mark included them in the piece and I think 55 to 1 for Everton to finish in the top four. And that's a huge jump from Spurs who are, are 13 to 1. So, yeah, I think by, by all accounts, uh, underlying performance, the bookies models, various models, the injury table. I think Everton have the most injuries of any team in the Premier League right now, and probably the most kind of key injuries as well. Um, yeah, they're they're an outside shout for a reason, but I don't think they're a uh, a great outside outside shout either. Okay, well, I certainly think that this is the most compelling aspect of the Premier League as we head to the finish line, the Champions League mini league. I'm going to ask you to make your predictions. I'm assuming you've both got City and United in first and second spot. What about third and fourth, Tom? I think Leicester might hold on. Uh, I'm kind of... You don't sound convinced, as you you say. (laughs) You're not selling that to me. No, I've... I'm I'm really not. Um, I just think there's there's a there's enough of a gap there, and they might be able to get a a bit ahead of steam ahead of like their really really tough running. But um, yeah, it's I mean the same way that all the data we've seen shows that it's uh, it's hard to call. I'm obviously finding it very tough myself to to pick third and fourth. Um, but yeah, I think that I want to believe West Ham can stay in, but I I do think that perhaps Chelsea are going to sneak in there into into fourth place come the end of the season. Proper heart versus head stuff for Tom there, Michael. You're normally a little stronger in your opinions. <laughs> Pleased to hear it. Um, <laughs> okay, my my strong opinion is that Liverpool will make it. Uh, despite being in sixth at the moment. So on paper, they're the outsiders. But I think they have 
returned to form. I think that massive blip over the winter was slightly crazy and slightly illogical. And from their recent performances, I think they're back towards their... Not bad towards their best, but I think they're good enough to do it. The other slot, I mean, Chelsea have still got to play West Ham. They've still got to play Leicester. So I think those two games are really going to be crucial in deciding it. I mean, I think Tom mentioned earlier, the, the Opta prediction had them had all these sides within a point of one another. So, yeah, just the head-to-head games are going to be absolutely massive, uh, particularly West Ham against Chelsea. I think if West Ham win that, that will just be so important for them in terms of believing confidence. So I'm going to reluctantly say that it will be Liverpool and Chelsea and it will be the, the big boys who, who eventually get those two positions, but it is so tight. And it's really the only thing that is going to be interesting for the rest of the Premier League campaign, isn't it? Because the title is pretty much settled. Relegation, I think, is very close to being settled with Fulham's uh, poor last three results. So the Champions League fight, I think, will be really exciting. There you go. Uh, the zonal marking big boys have run the rule over the race for the Champions League. Thank you so much for listening to this pod, guys. It's always great to hear from you. You can get in touch on Twitter, of course, but also in the comments section if you listen to this podcast on the Athletic site or app. You can do so without hearing adverts as well. So that's a good place to listen to the pod. And if you're not a subscriber of The Athletic, you'd like to read all the good stuff on there and be able to listen to all The Athletic's podcasts ad-free, theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking. And you'll pay just £3.99 for the first six months of your annual subscription. So do sign up today. Join us next week on the Zonal Marking podcast. Make sure you're subscribed. So many other good pods in The Athletic stable, which you can explore on the site and app. Uh, This has been a pleasure. We'll talk to you again next week. The Athletic.